So really what I want to talk about, because I've been thinking about it all summer, is what what is the wisdom that sustains the mind in difficult times? Not Buddhist wisdom particularly, but wisdom wisdom, because I think it's universal wisdom and we can find it in every great spiritual path. We can find it apart from spiritual paths. There are wise people who know what's important in life. And uh, they, they know, uh, as, I, as I read you that little piece from... Um, David Foster Wallace, the, the, the riddle or the, the little story about the old fish passing the two young fish and saying, morning boys, how's the water? And having the two young fish sometime afterwards look at each other and one ask, what the hell is water? That uh, making the point that what sustains us is right in front of us and that we often don't see it. What's the wisdom? that we need to know that would sustain us. Also, as I've watched that title go around as the title of conferences, In Difficult Times, we've been, people are meaning to say these are difficult times. The, war, the world is faced with terrifying consequences about the situation of the planet, unprecedented in its history, an incredible number of wars and atrocities and uh, privations happening all over the planet. The thing that I wanted to say about that is the the scope of environmental um, crisis is unprecedented. The numbers of people on the planet afflicted is unprecedented because the number of people on the planet is unprecedented. But difficult times, I think, are not unprecedented. I think that it would be not possible ever to say about a human life other than difficult times. It's all difficult. Um, I read a line in a, in a novel a couple of weeks ago. It's really the crucial line in the novel, but it makes the point so well of how I've been thinking about Buddhist wisdom and how it sustains. It's a, it's a line that happens in a conference room in a hospital where uh, a noted uh, trauma surgeon is addressing a, a, an assembled group of young physicians applying for internship residencies in that, uh, in, uh, in, as uh, emergency trauma surgeons. And he asks a question which apparently is a standard question to ask in, uh, of, of medical students and young physicians. He asks, what crucial medication in first response trauma situations is uh, administered through the ear? <laughs> and he said, and in the, in the room, everyone sat quietly and looked around. And then someone raised his hand and gave the correct answer. Do you know the correct answer? Words of consolation. You'll be okay. We'll take care of you. We know what to do. Relax. Everything is all right. Now, when I said that, did your hair stand on end? Mine did too. Those are about the best words that anybody can ever say. I'm here. I'll take care of you. You're not alone. Relax. This is okay. My friend Howie Cohen, 
who began his practice 30-some years ago, about the time that I did, who teaches here, my colleague at Spirit Rock, says the first time he heard anyone teach about the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha, he cried. He said it was such a relief to hear, first of all, that my view that life was difficult and challenging, no matter what, was not my own peculiar, distorted view of the world, that that's actually true. No matter what the circumstance, not having to do with you know the obvious things about life is very hard, and more hard if you don't have enough to eat, if you're poor, if you're sick in your, in your physicalness. But if really, apart from all those things, the most difficult thing is to have a mind that's content, a mind that's relaxed, a mind that doesn't need something else. He said there were two, the, the, fir the first time he heard that he cried. It says, so consoling to know that his perception was not unique. So consoling to know that no matter how content your mind seemed, one false move, one piece of news, the phone could ring at any moment. Anyone could tell you anything. We are one hair's breadth away from something that plunges the mind into despair, wishing, needing for it to be other, but it's not other. <clears throat> I get, I'm, I'm thinking of Joan Didion's book, The Year of Magical Thinking. And um, her husband died. It wasn't even a surprise. He'd been a sick man. He wasn't young. But... And all the ways in which for a year her mind didn't believe it. That it refuses to believe it. Can't relax into the truth of how things are. How easy it is to lose connection with the fact that our own hearts and minds have the ability to console, to appreciate, to actually get it that this is the way that life is, to be caught in what happened rather than to see the truth of what happens in a context that somehow supports and consoles. When you hear the third, third, the third noble truth, peace is possible. After the first two, life is difficult for anyone, just because of its transiency. It's transient, and what was the other word I heard the other day that was so interesting? Everything is temporal and contingent. Everything is temporal and contingent, and contingent on so many things. And you don't know what. Shockingly contingent on so many things. Terribly contingent. There was the, the, the event in Oakland a few years ago where um, a young boy taking a piano lesson in the afternoon was sitting at his piano teacher's house playing the piano, taking a piano lesson. And in a drive-by shooting, a bullet came through the window and severed his spinal cord. And he is, won't walk in his whole life because he was sitting at that piano at that time, taking a piano lesson. You can take all the vitamins in the world, have a very low cholesterol. You could live in a good neighborhood. You don't know what's going to happen to you from one moment to the next. How can we know that our lives are contingent on everything? There's a woman here on Sir Francis Drake Boulevard 
where a tree fell down over her car a few years ago in a rainstorm, and it fell over the front seat, and she got killed, and her grandchild in the back seat survived, fortunately. But had it been one second later, it would she would have survived and not the grandchild. And Two seconds later, they would have both. And two seconds earlier, they would have both. And you don't know. You don't know. It's shockingly contingent on so many things. I was standing... Um, I was... Th I, I, I went into the pharmacy in the small town that I live in in France about three weeks ago. And as I walked into the pharmacy, the pharmacist, a woman I know, rushed past me and out the door carrying a kit with her, which apparently was a defibrillator. And my husband, who I was supposed to meet uh, in that pharmacy, I looked around, he wasn't there. And I had seen Madame Sardas rush out the door, so I knew something was amiss, and he wasn't there. And uh, apparently, a man had fallen dead on the floor in the middle of paying for his groceries next door in the grocery store. Middle of paying for his groceries, collapsed, fell dead onto the floor. And apparently, they'd called for help, and the two of them had run out. And I looked out the door, and I saw across the street, facing into the pharmacy, the people in the pizza store across the street were standing in the doorway and looking across the street and pointing and gesturing, saying, keeping their distance, but pointing and gesturing. So I came out of the pharmacy, and I peeked around the corner into the pharmacy, and I saw Madame Sardas on the floor doing um, cardiac massage on a man who was splayed out and shirt open to his waist, big gray beard, and his body was really white, 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 and his face was quite purple, actually, he looked very dead, and here was Madame pumping away. Actually, my husband was in there. He was taking a pulse and monitoring pulse, and two other people were doing the cardiac massage. And uh, I went and I sat down across the street, and I thought about it. Um, I was thinking about the fact that he was playing for his lunch. So he probably is buying groceries. He probably didn't feel bad a minute before. And you could be buying your lunch, feeling okay, and the next minute gone. And how you don't know, ever, when is that moment. You know, that uh, I was thinking about the fact that it seems so shocking that you could not know that it's the next moment. I've had, as many of you know, I've had three very close friends die in the last few years. And their deaths were all sad to me. But they weren't shocking because they'd been sick for so long. So you expected them to die. And in fact, by the time they died, you were kind of glad that they died in a certain way because it was the end of a terrible amount of suffering. And I was very sad that they had been sick and I missed them very much. So I'm sad when I think about them. But the death was not shocking. It was, in fact, a desirable event, and one that we were wishing, in fact, were happening. It seemed so shocking that it could happen so unexpectedly. And no one knew him, actually. Back at the pharmacy, everybody regrouped, and they, they, they could look in his driver's license and all that and know where he was from. And there's a big campground next to the town, and he was probably a camper there. And, um, 
nobody knew more about him than that. And I was thinking about that when I'm shocked by the precariousness of things, I think to myself, we always have, I think, the sense that there's time in our lives to do things. I often hear about people who are gravely ill and they reconcile with their brother that they haven't spoken with in 10 years or someone else or they call up and they make amends for something or they apologize for something that they maybe could have apologized for earlier. And, but they have time to tidy that all up. But when it's shocking like that, you don't have a chance to time it, tidy it up. I was thinking about, um, for me, the importance of not leaving anything for the last minute because I might not have a last minute. Um, not only because I might not have a last minute, because with the minutes I have, I can either live, I think, in the uh, alarm of knowing how precarious it all is, or I can use the time that I have to uh, really value each moment that I have. I mean, we don't have that many moments. If I realize that in this moment I have the possibility of being preoccupied with my own stories and my own little dramas that I'm nurturing, I uh, love it that on that uh, on Kathy's uh, list of uh, uh, things that the mind could uh, start to do that are trivial given the scope of the dilemma we face, senseless bickering is one of the things that we do. Uh, senseless bickering. There's not a lot of time to do senseless bickering. If in place of senseless bickering, we could do some loving gesture of connection, we could call somebody that we think is lonesome, or we could go visit somebody, or we could bake cookies for somebody, or we could call somebody and give them a good word, or write a letter to the editor. There are lots of things we could do at our time other than senseless bickering. If we realize that the time is limited, and you had a budget, he said, okay, you have 4,829 more days. How many days do you want to spend senseless bickering? How many days do you want to spend loving? And the, I think that the reason for that, for thinking about that, that I could spend my time terrified of living, or I could live as fully connected as I possibly could, the fully connected in, in goodwill and in compassion in uh, appreciation is twofold liberating. One is the connection itself is warm and uh, gratifying. As a matter of fact, in the, in the connection of compassion, there are two people there uh, really aware of the other person's connection to them. The self disappears, and what's left is the connection and the feeling of the connection. I always think at this point of uh, Frank Ostaseski's story uh, that he tells to hospice volunteers that he trains about sitting with two men um, on a bed with one lying in the bed about to die and the other the long-term partner of the dying man and just talking about old times and what went on in their lives and uh, the uh, living on partner said to the man who's about to die, he said, uh, we really had some good times together, Tom. And Tom says back, I'm having a good time right now. Oh. <laughs> you know, that in that moment, in that moment you're having a good time. Mm -hmm. There's nothing, there's, it's not about living or dying, what's going to be in the next moment. What's true in that moment 
in that, in that, in that moment, what's happening is he's dying. In that moment, love is present. When love is present, there aren't separate selves that are in any kind of a trouble. When consolation is present, there aren't separate selves having separate stories. When that connection is present, you are in the now. The past already happened, and the future is only a conjecture. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. Mostly, maybe all the time, but certainly mostly, when we're alarmed, it's what will be as a consequence of that. And if, I'm, if I am in any situation alarmed about the consequence of something, I'm not available in this moment to be fully here. If I have somehow uh, cultivated that faculty of connection, I'll live. If I can live connected, then I'll live as long as I live, really. I, that, I think that's it, that we're really alive. Because I think the real being alive is now and in connection. I don't actually think you have to cultivate uh, compassion or cultivate loving kindness, although sometimes we teach practices that do that. I think they are the natural response of the mind that's awake in this moment, appreciating what's actually happening. Then that, that's what comes out of it. Nobody has to give us compassion lessons. Nobody says, well, this baby's crying. I think it'd be a good idea to pick it up. You know, you feel like picking it up. And it'd be a good idea to pat it on the back. Nobody, for millennia, since the beginning of time, parents and pa parenting people have picked up babies and patted them on the back and moved with them. Nobody wrote them a manual move. You know, they, they, they figured out what to do. They fed it. They kept it warm. They cuddled it. They, went, they bounced it up and down. There are things that you don't have to tell people that are built into them. I think the mind falls asleep often and forgets what's important. I think that the, the, the key thing is not so much to talk about what's the wisdom that we need. The wisdom is always the same wisdom. Things are what they are. They keep on changing. We're not in charge. To cling to what isn't here is the source of suffering and that everything is contingent. Everything is contingent on so many things. I mean, we do a lot of things hoping to affect the outcome, but fundamentally we're not in charge. I think that's the fundamental wisdom of the world, certainly the fundamental Buddhist wisdom. I remember teachers at my early retreats, when I first I was starting to sit, and they'd say, now I'm going, to tell, give a, I'm going to give a talk on the three insights, the crucial insights that the Buddha taught. Three characteristics of experience that if you knew, know this, it will liberate the mind from suffering. And now I'm going to tell it to you. And I would think to myself, no, no, don't tell it. Because if you tell it, then how will I know if I have such a thought that that's a genuine insight? Or maybe it'll be like it's not, I didn't really have the insight. It was just something that you told me. And then I didn't really feel it deeply. It's like telling somebody when they're starting a detective story or a mystery that on the last page, so-and-so actually the butler did it. He said, don't tell me now. I don't want to know. So, but, and then they'd plunge right on. I mean, I didn't say that. I just thought it. Don't tell me. And then they would plunge right on. And they'd say, here are the three insights. The three insights are anicca, dukkha, anatta, that things are all temporary, that there isn't anything but temporariness. There's only the arising of things and their passing. Everything, 
is in process. There isn't anything that isn't in the process of becoming something else, which is actually marvelous, of course. You know, a, a, a friend of mine is a grandfather as of uh, 10 days ago. So he is, of course, the first, you know, it, <laughs> like all grandfathers, there's never been a baby like this one. It's the most amazing, so alert, so, which is how it's supposed to be, you know, it's wonderful. To and for so long, this baby was inside and everybody was imagining it. First of all, it was microscopic, and then it was growing. Then it was, first it was an idea. Then it was something that was growing that we knew about. Now it's out in the world. Now it's two weeks old. Now it's looking around, and it's in progress. You know that. Uh, uh, <laughs> when Jane, my friend, my good friend James Barras, uh, and uh, his wife Jane had their their son Adam, uh, who should be is. Colin's 22. Adam's 22, uh, almost 23, I guess. It was a while ago. But when Adam was born, James had said um, to a group of us, maybe he said it to a class teaching, he said it, they came home from birth and everything was perfect and he was Jane sitting and Adam was eating or sleeping and being held and they were all so happy. And he said, I had the thought, from here on, it's downhill all the way. So, <laughs> And if, if and if it it it's a it's a complicated thought because say you think to yourself well what kind of a person thinks that you think now you're going to grow it's going to be wonderful and it's going to be great and it is wonderful and great and they have incredible pleasure from Adam but the thing is that having that what I think about a lot is every time I hear about or I have another grandchild or somebody has a grandchild they think about people are so excited wow. And especially the parents, and they have no clue that they have just mortgaged their lives completely away uh, to the well-being of this particular person, and that their life is not their own anymore. You know that forever, when I will be a hundred, my eighty-year-old son's story will be important to me. You know, and, and, I, and I'm very, very happy for that because if, if it were otherwise, I'd be very, very unhappy. I mean, it actually is the joy of that tension of having people in the world that you care about deeply and want them to survive and who care about you. That's what keeps us alive is loving people. But it's very complicated because everyone is subject to change. That's what Anicca is. Dukkha is not being able to reconcile the mind to what's the truth in any point. Um, I had a very strange memory. As I was making myself notes for this talk, I remembered um, an event. I don't remember it often. It isn't the first time I remembered it. But I, I remembered an event that happened 50 years ago. Oh, I must have remembered it because last week was the 50th anniversary of my mother's death. My mother died when I was 23 years old. And um, I was at the time of her death in... Um, um, Houston, I think it was in Houston, Texas. I was where, wherever Fort Sam Houston is, must be in Houston. And I had just arrived there the previous day with my husband, who was a newly commissioned Army medic captain, and two children, two babies. And we had arrived there the day before on a long car journey to get there and checked into a motel because we didn't have a permanent living quarters yet. 
So all to tell you that um, my parents, who at that point were in Illinois, um, uh, did not. They didn't have a. They didn't have a phone number for us. Nobody had a cell at that point. Mm -hmm. But I must have called and said the name of the motel that I was at, because the following morning, early, there was a knock on the door. And there was a telegram from Western Union from my father's friend, Max. And it said, Sylvia, call immediately such and such a phone number. And it said, no cause for alarm, Max. So we called the phone number. And the message from Max was that my mother had died the previous evening. Uh, and so... You know, the rest of that story is we packed ourselves up and went to New York for the funeral, et cetera. And I, but I remember thinking, what was Max thinking when he wrote No Cause for Alarm? <laughs> I mean, um, but, you know, I mean, I mean, she died. But, but, you know, when I think about it, I thought about it when I was putting this together, and I thought, really, in some profound way, No Cause for Alarm. You know, I, I really, you know... Uh, it makes me a little bit tearful, but no cause for alarm. I was frightened to death that my mother would die. She, I was because she was a frail person throughout my childhood, and always worried that she wasn't wouldn't be well, you know, that she wouldn't live. But in a certain sense, I I had been married five years by the time she died. I had two children. I was a grown up person. I was grown up as I wasn't. I wasn't as grown up as I thought I was, but <laughs> at any event. I was 23 years old. I was taking care of two babies competently. I, you know, I was living a life. So I didn't need my mother to take care of me. So in some sense, there was no cause for alarm because I didn't need to do anything. There was nothing to do. She had died. Um, so the fear I had, you know, what will I do without a mother? I'll manage without a mother. You know, I, I, I missed having a mother, but... One way or another, people manage with whatever they miss having that they wish they'd had. But um, I think that uh, the, the, you know another part of the story is I I I, uh, I guess the mind gets so uh, dazed with that that kind of a, a news that wasn't as shocking as you know she was a, wasn't a well woman. But I flew to New York and. Uh, just in time to get up the next morning and go to the funeral, and we were getting dressed, my mother's sister, my aunt, and myself, and we got dressed to go to the funeral. And um, at, at some point, one of us said to the other one, um, do you put on lipstick? Do people wear lipsticks to, to funerals? You know, we put on an appropriate somber dress. I said, if I remember the dress I wore. I said, do you put on lipstick? And my aunt said, I don't know, she said, it's too bad that Gladys isn't here. She would know what to do. I thought to myself, it's, the mind gets so crazed. It was too bad that Gladys wasn't there, but not because we'd know what kind of lipstick to wear or not wear. It was just too bad that Gladys wasn't there because she was dead. You know, but the mind gets so peculiar that it doesn't know what's too bad. You know, that's, what you have to know in front of you is really what's true. You know, because you, you really, really what I've been thinking about quite a lot is it so hard to keep the mind screwed together into what is true and what should I do now? What matters now? I think that the question is always, what matters? What matters? What will console you in this moment? You know, and the, the, 
I, mean, I think about it now. I worried about my grandfather, my mother's father, who was alive, who didn't look like he was going to make it through the day. You know, and what I worried more about whether he would than I, I, I knew I would. But the kinds of things that, you know, what, what should we have done? What would we have done? What could we have done? But the mind gets so confused. I think when we remember what could be done, that I think the words of, of funeral liturgies, people say things like, if you go to the movies, they say, that, I don't know if anybody really says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, but they certainly used to. And, but really, I think that the, the, piece, the core piece of wisdom at the time of a funeral is people die. Everybody dies. Sooner or later, everybody dies. That's really the message. If you want to think about it in the classical Buddhist wisdom type way, there's the story of the, um, the uh, monk who is walking along the edge of a cliff, meditating or walking along, or, and suddenly is chased by a tiger. And um, there's no place to go, so he leaps off the side of the cliff, catching onto a vine as he leaps over the side of the cliff, and then is hanging halfway down the cliff, hanging onto the vine. And down the cliff underneath is a raging river with rocks way down below. And so if he lets go of the vine, he's going to fall into the river. The tiger above him is leaning over the edge of the cliff and growling. Uh, he's hanging, swinging on the vine in between. A mouse comes out of a crack in the rock in the cliff and begins to gnaw on the <laughs> vine. This is a classic Buddhist image, this mouse gnawing on the vine and the monk hanging in midair. In, um, in, uh, in Korea, in Buddhist temples, this is a huge paintings on the walls. In tremendous, in the Korean temple walls are beautifully painted in very bright kind of tempera colors, really bright colors, like children's picture book stories. You see the monk swinging and the tiger growling. It's a classic story. And the piece of the story that's the crux of the story is at that point the monk assesses his situation and in front of him there is a strawberry growing on a vine. And he picks a strawberry and he eats it. And he says, this is a really a delicious strawberry. <laughs> and really I think that's the, 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 the message for us all. We are all hanging from a vine. And mice are gnawing away all the time. We don't even know what mice are gnawing, you know. We don't know. It's all so contingent. You know, I, I, I think to myself, I have no fears of, of flying. Some people do, I know. I don't have any fear about flying. But sometimes when I land, I think, you know, that was an amazing thing, you know. There's a big iron bird goes up in the air, stays aloft so long, all kinds of things happen to points. But you never know. But, you know, you could get off the plane in perfectly good health and have an accident in your taxi cab. You don't know. It's all so contingent. It's not going to be forever anyway. We're all, we all have a shelf life, even if we, <laughs> even if we stay safe in the cupboard, we outlive our shelf life. You know? It's not going to last forever. And what are you going to do with it in the meantime? I think we get confused by fear. I think we get uh, confused often by anger, often provoked by fear. But the best story I heard recently about um, Buddhist wisdom for difficult times that really have to do with difficult financial times was a friend of mine 
a woman I know quite well, who is a serious Dharma practitioner in this community, a um, person my age, uh, had her entire life savings invested with Bernie Madoff. And uh, so now she has no life savings. And she's in her 70s. So it's a, it's a, and when we talked about it, um, spent some time together, not long after she'd found out, I said, how was it to get that phone call? You know, what did you feel when you heard about it? Because she's had, had her money there invested for a long time. She said, well, first, I, I, you know, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't get it. You know, it didn't go in. She said, I finally, I got it. She said, and I was, I was, I am terribly frightened because I, you know, I, I didn't know, why, how am I going to do this? She said, you know, the only thing I didn't get was angry. She said, because I thought to myself, I knew all the time how extra that was, that I have enough troubles now without compounding it with anger. She said, I couldn't have done that without my practice. She said, I just didn't go there. I knew that that was an extra I don't need. I was so impressed with that. My friend Sharon Salzberg has, uses the word extra. Uh, she says, we do add-ons all the time. Something happens, and then we add on some interpretation to it. If I go back to the story of my mother died when, when she did, if I had uh, if I had fears, I, I I suppose I did. I had fears about um, I'm not going to be able to take care of myself without my mother. But that's just a that's a worry, and it's an interpretation, it's a conjecture, it's an editorial opinion. But actually, I could take care of myself. I missed her, and I felt sad about it. But fear, but you know, it was an extra that worry. All the worries, what ifs, are extra. You know, that, I think sometimes if I could expunge that track out of my mind, the what if, you know, the mind is always looking for contingencies to explore. What if this? Most of us don't think, what if I get hit by flying space debris? But, <laughs> but you know, some people do, you know? Uh, but, but, you know, if I say that, and, you know, for people who don't worry about it, they say, well, that's a ridiculous thing. But, you know, when you think about it, everything is ridiculous to worry about because it'll either happen or it won't happen. Some people apparently get hit by flying space debris, but not a lot. What if I get hit by a golf ball out golfing? People die from that. Or they die on the coconut trees from coconuts falling on them. You can read a list of things that happen to people. You know, they're not as frequent as heart attacks, but... People get killed every year sitting under palms because a uh, coconut falls on them. I mean, life is fraught with danger. <laughs> Lightning on a golf course. <laughs> so, but what if? But there, you, know, you can't think, what if while I'm taking this piano lesson somebody drives by? What if when I ride down the street? That, you know, we just don't know. And I think the response to that is not the blithe, well, ta-da-da, it's nothing. The, it, it's something. This is a very contingent life. My father, when I was a child, my father was not what you might call a pious man. He didn't go to religious services. He didn't have much uh, interest in any kind of religious dogma. He distanced himself from the um, 
from the, um, uh, what do you call it, um, superstitious religion of his parents' generation. Uh, and he prided himself on being a scientist and not having anything to do with that. But he had a prayer that is part of the, the, the uh, blessing uh, liturgies of Judaism. And the prayer is thanking whatever one want to thank, um, but giving thanks for having made it to a certain occasion so that um, if you make it to Passover once again and your family comes together and you make it to that season of liberation, the whole group makes a prayer that says, we are thankful for having been kept in life and sustained and making it until this day. My father made that prayer. You're supposed to make uh, that prayer, that blessing on, uh, on holidays, on auspicious occasions like the arrival of a child or the bat mitzvah of a daughter or the marriage of an of a offspring. Uh, something arrives that you're really aware this is an auspicious day. I'm very, very glad that I am here because it could have been otherwise. I could have, that's, the, that's, the, that's the implicit thing. It's really giving thanks, okay, I really, here I am, and it could have been otherwise. It's an awareness of the contingency. I think that often of Jane Kenyon's um, uh, poem, which I don't think it's, that's the name of it, but it has as the end of every stanza, stanza, it could have been otherwise. I got up this morning and I had a ripe peach with my cereal. It could have been otherwise. And on and on. And, and then it ends by saying, and someday it will be otherwise. But we can't imagine that until it's otherwise. And then you think back all the times that it wasn't otherwise and you had it not in your consciousness that it would be otherwise. How should we live because it will be otherwise? Yeah, I just, I worked a little bit with a different use of what if this spring. I woke up one morning and just the chatter started of this is going to go wrong. This is, And I just thought, what if I started the day with, what if this turns out to be the best day I've had so far in my life? I think that's a great idea. Say, well, what if I get up in the morning and say, what if this is the best day uh, I've ever had in my life so far? I'm trying to remember. I had a friend. I can't, I can't remember, otherwise I would, well, maybe she wouldn't even want me to give a citation for this, whose partner for a very long period of time uh, would get up every morning and say, today is the best day of my whole life, and my friend, somewhat more negative and aversive in temperament, <laughs> would think to herself, how does he know that it's that? They didn't start yet, but, you know, but that's, you know really, uh, most morning liturgies begin I'm glad that I woke up. Thank you. I got up again. My father used to say that thank you blessing uh, on the ex when he went into the Atlantic Ocean to swim for the first time each year in June. He said it when he ate the first peach of the year, which we didn't, didn't do all year round because he didn't get them from Chile in the middle of November. So he had to wait until the summer and have a peach. And I began to think sometime in my adolescence, actually, uh, I, I, I was sort of early on thinking of the contingency of everything, that when you think about it, you ought to make that prayer every night and you get home for dinner with everybody. If you get your whole scene collected and everybody is there and in good shape, 
to recognize that that's a miracle. Everybody crossed 100 streets that day and got on all kinds of conveyances and did all kinds of things that aren't harrowing, uh, uh, say that so-and-so does life-threatening things. Being alive is a life-threatening thing. All <laughs> kinds of things happen to you from the external and from the internal. And to be able, instead of thinking, ah, I just lock myself home and not do anything, to think, what do I do with this short span? I think the answer to it is uh, we, spend it, uh, we spend it as connected as we can be because then we're as alive as we can be. There's a cartoon in uh, a recent issue of the Shambhala Sun. Oh, I turned the page of it. Uh, let me see if it, it's easily available. Anyway, here it is. The cartoon of um, a man sitting on a sofa. Uh, and there are two uh, demons sitting on the sofa next to him. You can see that they're demons because they have tails sticking down from them. And the three of them are watching television. And he's talking on the telephone and he looks all hassled and tousled. And he says, I've been wrestling with my demons but now we're watching television. And, <laughs> so I also thought that was funny. Why do you think it's funny? I think it's very funny. Why do you think it's funny? Why do you think it's funny? Why, why? It's true. It's true. <laughs> so, but what's a Dharma lesson? Listen, it's in the Shambhala Sun magazine. No, I think it's true. Take a break. We take a break. We take a break. It literalizes what? Yeah, that I. You know, the thing is, why don't we don't we don't we don't spend? Uh, well, maybe well, there's a lot of ways to think about it. First of all, I think it's very hard to look at the truth all the time. I mean, but there's a, sometimes when I think to myself, I uh, oh wait a minute. It was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who wrote a book years ago called uh, uh, Dying, the final, wait a minute, st final stage of life or the final stage of growth or something. And I thought to myself, give me a break. You know, when I get a word that, you know, your time is coming very soon, I don't want to have to grow anymore. Let me just, <laughs> let me just kind of coast my way out. You know, there must be a time, there must be a time when you can quit. You know, there's, there's just so much of polishing that diamond that I want to do in this lifetime. You got to get a little time out from, you know, facing your shadow and, you know. Maybe I die with my shadow intact. But I think, you know, one of the other things that I thought about in that, um, uh, looking at that cartoon is in a certain way, the principal demon that we all wrestle with, the principal thing that we that I think we have to struggle, we have to look at directly, is that existential truth about our stay here is limited and contingent. And that really is what um, uh, Irvin Yalom, who I've, as a psychologist who I've been reading a lot recently, wrote a book called Staring at the Sun, in which he said there are two things. I, I think he's quoting... He's quoting somebody, he's quoting one of the existentialist psychologists, but I don't remember who. But he's quoting him saying there are two things that are difficult in life. One of them is staring at the sun, and the other one is thinking about one's own death. Mm -hmm. 
and really uh, acknowledging the truth, not only that I will die, but everything that I love and care about, everyone will die, if not before me, after me. You know, and then I think, oh, well, I want to go before this one, but after that. You know. <laughs> and you don't get to choose. You don't know. You could be paying for your lunch in the supermarket. You don't know. You don't know anything. Yeah. I have to go. You said there were three. You said impermanence, dukkha. I've heard the other one. Else. The other one is anatta. It means interconnectedness. It means contingency. Thank you very much. Those are the three things that we... that. The Buddha taught that I believe if we really knew, really, really knew, they would stop all the senseless bickering. They would stop everything except relating to people with kindness and compassion. Really. Those are the things that are true. Everything is changing. Everything is temporal. Nothing lasts forever. Everything is changing to, for the mind to insist that things be other than what they are is suffering and that everything is depends on everything is caused and is changing everything not only is changing but is changing as a result of infinite causes about which ultimately we don't have any control we have some limited control about what we do and how we do it but really everything is impermanent and contingent and to really condition the kind of mind that recognize that so deeply knows that that not a, not only is that my conundrum, but everyone's. We each of us have to go through this life and get out of it, and that really the warmest, happiest way to do that is in cultivate in, in connection, not alone. So that the words of consolation that we say to somebody, we touch somebody, we say, we're right here. You'll be all right. We'll take care of you. You're not alone. We know what to do. You'll be okay. That's always true. You say it to people, even they die. They are okay. This is what happens to people. But to feel somehow I am part of the shared wheel of living and dying, not doing it alone. We take care of each other. I see that it is 11 o'clock. And I had a lot of stuff I still was going to say, so I'll say it next week. Uh, but really, I think that that's, that's the whole story. You like that story about I was wrestling with my demons, now we're watching television. <laughs> I was thinking the demons also need distraction. <laughs> I think to myself sometimes, that uh, it's a very good end to senseless bickering if the parties involved in the senseless bickering, if one of them can call, you know, like time out, like in a, in a basketball game, and say, wait a minute, senseless bickering is happening. We're taking a time out for senseless bickering and going out for pizza. <laughs> and you go out for pizza, and you have a pizza, and you walk around, and you look at other people, and you, you screw back the head on straight. This is a very unprofessional way to say it. I can't go to a conference and say, uh, Buddhist practice is screwing your head on straight. But I actually think it's screwing your head on straight because if my head is screwed on straight, you realize that nothing is important other than who's alive, who's continuing, and who's around that I can help so I can help them because it is in that connection of feeling that there's something I'm doing in this world of vast suffering where everyone is suffering 
where my contribution to it is not only ameliorating someone else's suffering, but saving myself in the process. That's what we're going to do. That's the whole... That's the whole of it. And the whole of practice of sitting quietly, of clearing your mind, is to keep what wisdom in there, in there, from fleeing. Every time an event happens, like someone falls dead, all of a sudden you say, wow. Then you remember, oh, yeah, I get it. There are things that matter and things that are senseless bickering. So let me remember what matters in my life. If we, maybe in, in uh, is this, this what's happening now? that's about to kidnap my mind. One of my demons worry about this, get mad about that, do this, do that. Is that really, do I need to do that? Is that trip necessary? Or can I say, no, no, thanks. I'm, I'm on my way to do something helpful. <laughs> Let me not get distracted. So let's sit 30 seconds. These are the resolves, the four reminders Tibetan Buddhists say every day. First, I contemplate the preciousness of being free and well-favored. This is difficult to gain, easy to lose. Now I must do something meaningful. Second, the whole world and its inhabitants are impermanent. In particular, life of beings is like a bubble. Death comes without warning. This body will be a corpse. At that time, the Dharma will be my only help. I must practice it with exertion. Third, when death comes, I'll be helpless because I create karma. I must abandon evil deeds and always devote my time to virtuous actions, thinking this every day. I will examine myself. Fourth, the homes, friends, wealth, and comforts of samsara are the constant torment of the three sufferings. Just like a feast before the executioner leads you to your death, I must cut desire and attachment and attain enlightenment through exertion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.